What a great privilege it is to get to share the word with you. Um, so excited to be here this morning, and we are going to be covering Isaiah chapter 6, if you'll turn there in your Bibles. Uh, by way of introduction, I wanted to talk to you about what it's like to focus on God's glory, and I guess it brought back to me remembrance of one of my favorite times in ministry, and just being able to serve alongside Pastor Darius, and uh, one night we got called several years ago out to um, on a Christmas Eve to go minister to a family, a deacon in our church who's uh, since uh, gone on to be with the Lord. But he had called us in distress that um, his neighbor that he'd been ministering, the family, um, husband and wife and their daughter, um, were experiencing very demonic oppression in their apartment and were under attack. And it was one of those nights where you realize, you know, you know, when people say ministry is boring or wonder what you do at the church office, you know, I say this is just another day at the church office, you know. And um, it was an exciting night, um, but really it was full of joy because you got to see what God was doing in his glory. And it has nothing to do with what Darius or I did, but just to seeing God show up in, in a radical way through multiple people to see salvation happen that night. And um, as we showed up on scene, like I said, there was a lot of craziness going on. Um, really just a heavy demonic um, sense of um, an oppression um, would be the best word I could use to describe it. And Darius and I quickly realized that the husband wasn't saved, and um, we were determined that night to lead him to the Lord. And, um, and uh, quite honestly, we were hitting a lot of opposition. And really, um, this guy, um, John, he was really adamant about one thing, is that he's, he's never seen God, never seen God in his life. And I was, Darius was sharing scripture with him. I was sharing scripture with him. I'm trying to take him down Romans Road, and we're just hitting a constant dead end. And, um, you know, just trying to love on this guy, but it's, as the more we shared scripture with him, the angrier he got, you know, to the point where he, at one point he's clenching his fist, and I'm looking at Darius, I'm like, he's going to hit me, you know? And, you know, and we're having this moment where much of the night was Darius and I looking at each other with big eyes, you know, going, what's next kind of thing. And, um, and so... At one point, I look at Darius, and I'm like, we got family at home. It's 2 a.m., it's Christmas Eve, like, let's call this DOA. You know, this situation's dead, you know, we're, we're not reviving here, you know. And, um, and then the Lord gets pressed on my heart, and really out of, you know, I brought nothing to the equation other than stupidity and, and obedience, because the Lord gets pressed on my heart to ask him why he was here. He'd never seen God, he's saying. And I just called him out, you know, and it was, I just said, you know, why are you here then? And I didn't even know as I'm asking the question what was going on, but I just felt like I needed to ask that question. And so I'll tell you what I told him was just simply that he had seen God out of 50-plus apartments. He's in this apartment. Why this apartment? Because of the love that was being exemplified and the glory of God being manifested through this deacon and his wife and the, and the way they were pouring into this family. Whenever something went wrong, where did they wind up? In what apartment? That apartment. Because in there was the Spirit of God the love of Christ being poured out into this family. And they didn't, they didn't know what they were seeking, but they knew enough that their daughter was in the arms of another man being ministered to, his wife bawling in this wife's arms. You know? And here this man, he doesn't know what's going on. He's at his wit's end. And as I'm explaining this, he's suddenly realizing, he's seeing that the grace of God and the compassion of believers and the glory lived out through, through his people. And then he gets to a spot and I just asked him, I said, are you ready to give up on your own strength? And he's like, yes. And, you know, Darius and I were looking at his shock, like, now what? You know, we already tried everything else, you know. So I said, Darius, pray with him. Let's lead him. 
And it was, I tell you, the demonic oppression was so bad that Darius starts to pray with the man and has a hard time speaking. I had to finish. It was crazy. But what was even crazier was just the love of God's glory and just seeing it rained out, not through us, not through Darius and I really, but through this deacon and his wife who just poured into this family. And I tell you that in, in introduction, the power and grace of God, the world needs to see. It needs to see more believers living this out and believing in the power and grace of God. And so Isaiah 6 is a reminder of us how we can see God in truth and he can influence our worship and our desire to serve him. And so A.W. Tozer said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let's uh, read Isaiah 6 together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood a seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs of the, from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. There are a lot of people in this world not seeing and not perceiving. But it doesn't stop our call. And as we take Isaiah 6 in context... You know, the prophet Isaiah, he's been speaking to the Jewish people in Judah regarding the fact that they've been, they had forsaken God. They'd forgotten who God was. And all while keeping the appearance of worshiping him. And so there was a great conflict. And God, God had warned them through Isaiah that if they didn't repent, he was going to remove them from the land. And now we pick up here in chapter 6, and we're told of a vision that Isaiah saw as he saw the Lord in the temple. And so let's look at the first verse here. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting out on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. See, we can learn a lot about who Uzziah is, and we can just focus right here, and we can stop for a second just on the fact that Uzziah died. It, it created a great turmoil in Isaiah's mind. And 2 Chronicles 26 gives, gives us some background to who Uzziah is. And, you know, he was a, he's an interesting character in history. He was 16 years old when he first became king. He was the 10th king of, of Judah, and he was a godly man, one of the only kings that didn't, that didn't stop worshiping the true God. But yet, but yet you know, he never to totally departed from worship. But yet he did fall into, to, into an area and a problem where he struggled. And where it was was his pride. You know, under his influence, the southern kingdom basically attained power, wealth, and success that they had not seen for a long time. Second Chronicles 26.5 says, And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. And then he expanded their armies, he defeated their enemies, he dug wells, he built towers, he developed weapons, he fortified the cities, he built walls. Can you imagine that? He built walls, right? Just let that sink in if you want. But um, Uzziah became confident, proud, and arrogant in his success as king. He'd forgotten that his blessings had come from the Lord. 
And so when the priest rebuked Uzziah for his actions, you know, he, 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 didn't, he, he took it as anger. He was a man that deserved to, to you know, in his mind, he, he deserved to be, he himself even worshipped and applauded in his actions. Second Chronicles 26, 16 says this, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So the problem here is that really the priests were the only ones authorized to burn incense. And here he's overstepping his bounds as king, thinking that he had every right to step into that role. And so when they confront him, he becomes angry. And God strikes him down with leprosy on his forehead. And he had leprosy to the day he died. And God just removed him because, because the very thing that we often struggle with is that in, in a lack of disobedience, he had, the, he had the ability to repent and come back to God and have favor with the Lord. But no, instead he got angry, believing that it was owed to him and that he deserved it. And, well, evidently Isaiah is disturbed by the death of this great king. He reigned for 52 years. And what he brought into the people of Judah was a consistency and a prosperous times. You know, for you and I, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's, you know, having Republican presidency, you know, in which we have many years of celebrating, you know, decreased taxes, low, low unemployment, soaring stock market, you know, a real estate market that's doing well, pro-Israel, pro-gun, right? And then you lose Trump in the midst of this, right? And you find out in 2020, Clinton and Pelosi have joined forces, right? Maybe I've gone too far, I'm sorry. <laughs> I offended, you know, maybe the three Democrats that are in the room right now, but let me, let me apologize to those three Democrats. For you, maybe it's like the day Trump came into office out of a lo- after a long run, you know, with Democrats, right? And now every day you've got to see these, these MAGA hats running around, right? And so no matter where you stand politically, we need to know where we stand with the Lord and where our focus is. And, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not too far from this ourselves, right? We, you see the negativity and the division and the, and the uncertainty that has come across in our country. All you have to do is read a few Facebook posts and you can see the anger and hostility that we have, even as Christians, towards one another as we politically look to, to fight and, and make waves. And so we're, we're not far from the Jewish people who were looking for a king and they were missing the Savior, right? We're looking for all our answers in a presidency. And yet for Isaiah, this was a time... This time of uncertainty really was a time for him to rediscover and to refocus. And Isaiah um, was focused on the king, Uzziah's death, when he, now he could re- change his attention and turn back to focusing on the Lord in his life. And so trials can either grow us or they can ruin us, which depends on where our focus is. And so you know, I don't know what your attention is today. I don't know what circumstances you're going through and what trials God has before you. But can we spot God's glory in our lives? Can we display him? Can we be a reflection of him? And if we want to worship and serve the Lord full-heartedly, we have to look at what Isaiah saw. And so I want to, that's where I want to focus today. We need to see what Isaiah saw. And he saw three things. He saw God's position of authority. He saw God's character. And he saw God's presence. Let's look at uh, verse 1 here again as we look at God's position of authority. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. You see, Isaiah saw, he saw God's sovereignty. He saw this, his earthly king had died, but now he's, he's realizing that God is still on the throne. He saw the Lord in all his glory. He had this profound impact on his life. When life seems to fall apart at the seams, you re, re, we have to remember that God is still in control. 
Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. We need to have that eternal perspective that this life is short, right? And in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18, I'll put them on the screen for you. It says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us far more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know, it says here that the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of the robe there, it's a Hebrew word, it's, the, it's shul. And it's basically, you know, the hem or the fringe of his robe. It represents, really demonstrates his authority and his rank and his position. And, you know, today we, we look at the shoulder or maybe the neckline of a, of a military uniform to figure out a person's rank and how we ought to respect them and, and give them command of our lives, right? But then it would have been, you would have looked at the robe, you would have looked at the hems, the fringe, the edge, edge of it. And understanding this leads to an interesting study through Scripture. The high priest had a blue robe and the fringe being pomegranates and bells. Their purpose was to make a chime when he entered the holy place, uh, proving his authority and right to be there. If there was no noise, God would strike him dead. Exodus 28.35 says, it, it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its, sound, and its sound shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord, so that he will not die. See, when Saul accidentally tore the edge of Samuel's robe in 1 Samuel, he said this. He said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. Maybe you remember as we went through the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 8, he says, it says, talks about a woman who had hemorrhaged for 12 years nonstop, right? She had exhausted out physicians. And then, then she, she comes upon Jesus. In Luke 8, 45, it says, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and she was instantly made well. The Bible speaks of many examples of the authority of the, of the hem and the cloak alone. And Mark 6, 56 says, wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces, imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. There is healing power in God's authority. We need to recognize that as believers if we're going to worship him. It was by faith they acknowledged his authority. It was that moment when she touched him, just barely touching him, and having that faith to do so is the point at which God touched him. He asked, Jesus is asking the disciples right after, feeling the power go out from him. There's power in his authority. So if we know and recognize God's place and his power and his authority, we ought to also be able to recognize his characters. Let's look at verses two and three. Above it stood a seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one cried to one another. And said, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The holiness of the Lord is only one, there's, there's only one instance really here in the Old Testament where they use the Hebrew superlative of three words combined together to have that impact and that emphasis. Some scholars argue this, but nonetheless, it's that repetitive nature that we ought to pay attention to. He's not just holy. He's the holy of holies. There's none like him. That word holy literally means to be set apart, different, distinct. There's no one else like God. No one else deserving of our worship. 
John told us in Revelation, uh, verses 4 and 8, it says, And in the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the, who was and who is and who is to come. When it comes down to it, God's holiness is all-encompassing. Every attribute you could assign to God really falls under his holiness. And these, these seraphim, out of all the things that they could talk about, you know, they could have talked about his love, his grace, his mercy, his power. They say he's holy. This is what overwhelmed them. Moses, in describing God in Genesis and Exodus alone, calls him holy over 124 times, I believe. It's important that we recognize that God is holy. These, these angelic seraphims, they had to say it three times. Even though these sinless creatures were careful to honor the holiness and purity of the Lord, they still, they couldn't look at him. They came to him with a great humility, covering their eyes, it says, covering their feet. That's the way we ought to approach God in worship, humbly coming to him. And the Lord said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So even the seraphim, they couldn't look at God's glory. They understood it to be that powerful and that magnificent. The seraphim used for four of their wings to express their humility and used the other two of their wings to express their willingness and ability to serve God. Spurgeon, he really describes it best. He says this, Thus they have four wings for adoration and two for active energy, four to conceal themselves and two for which they occupy themselves in service. We may learn from them that we shall serve God best when we are most deeply reverent and humbled in his presence. Veneration must be in a larger proportion than vigor. Adoration must exceed activity. As Mary at Jesus' feet was preferred to Martha and her much serving, so must sacred reverence take the first place and energetic service follow in due course. Listen, my friends, worship should be marked in humility before physical service. If we want to effectively serve God, we've got to be able to worship him and worship him in our service. See, we are to recognize the right to glory by giving him all the credit and glory that everything in our lives really comes down to what God has offered us, right? Isaiah, he finally understood this, right? Uzziah might, not, might have been a great king, but the Lord of God was still on the throne. He's the one that reigns. At times, we need to remember who's working all things out for us, for his holiness and for the glory of his name. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Let's look at um, verse 4 together. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So here... Isaiah is seeing, my second point, he's seeing the presence of God. Not only is the temple filled with his robe, but it's filled with his smoke. Every essence of the temple, every crack, every gap filled with his presence. If we want to worship God, we've got to recognize he deserves everything. He's not a God of partiality in our worship, in our service. He doesn't get our second best. He is second to none. See, Uzziah, he was, he was recognizing this. God should every, occupy every part of our worship. Matthew 28, 20 says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God has not forsaken us. In our darkest times, in our areas of trials, in those days when we think we're alone, he's there with us. 
Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct be without, be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, Isaiah, he begins to recognize two very important things after seeing the Lord in the temple. He recognizes, you know, his own personal condition as he reflects and contrasts his glory and his holiness compared to who he really is. And he also recognizes God's healing touch. Let's look at how he recognizes his own condition. This is what he says, picking up at verse 5. He says, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I will dwell in the midst, midst of a people of unclean lips. And for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And it said, Behold, this was touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. But he starts, he says, what, I'm ruined, I'm undone. That literally means he's torn apart. He's shattered. He's realizing that he's useless. He's ineffective. And in seeing God's holiness, Isaiah's reaction to the holiness is to come to that very thing. You know, he's, he's, had, he's five chapters into this prophetic book of Isaiah, and he's, he's been ministering to people and calling them out in their sin, and he's saying, woe to everybody else. And here he is, he's saying, woe, woe is me. Woe is me. See, if you look at chapter five, we don't have time to go into it, but he, he says, he calls out the people of Judah, and he says, woe to them six times. And he's calling out things that we might, we might recognize in our own lives. He's calling out their drunkenness, their greediness, their vanity, Wise in their own eyes, calling evil good. Any of these sound familiar, what we see today in our, in our lives today? We live now in a time when no matter how prosperous our nation is, on many levels, we're seeing this emboldenness of sin, right? We're forgetting who our creator is and that he holds us in his hands. And we're resorting now to killing innocent babies, right? Does, I, I don't know about you, but I'm appalled lately. It's honestly, it's hard. I don't, I don't watch TV. I don't have TV but I read a lot, and I, I'm having a hard time watching these news pieces come in and these articles. And, you know, we've, gone, we've been so emboldened. I'm listening to this governor the other day talk about, you know, we used to call it, they used to call it a fetus. And now, now they have no problem even calling it an infant. That's how we have allowed this in our country because we forgot who the creator is, and he sits on the throne, and this is a child of his, that we can take its life in our hands. And then this is happening under the watch of Christians as we sit with, on our hands. So although Isaiah was probably the most righteous guy in Judah, it's impacting him. He's realizing that woe is me. I'm the man undone to here today. When he caught a glimpse of God's holiness, he knew he was essentially sinful sludge. Simon Peter also had a similar reaction. Listen to what it says here in Luke 5, 8. He says, I fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. How about what Job said? He said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And when John saw Jesus in Revelation, he said this. He said, when I saw him, I fell to my feet like a dead man. That's the kind of impact we ought to see when we have God and are surrounded by us in our lives. When we go to him in prayer, when we're in the word, when we have fellowship with one another, that there be conviction. Condemnation is from the world, but may God convict us. Jesus, this is a good place to be, my friends. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's only complete 
poverty of our spirit when we see who God is. That's what we should have. We should be, be like filthy rags. Fortunately, that's a great place to be is what Jesus is reminding us. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he instantly realized there was a problem within his own heart. It was an internal thing for him. That's what happens when you get close to him. The closer we get to him, the more revealing it is of us. Until we see God, we're confronted with our own condition before him. We'll remain haughty and proud. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, the stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is the result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. See, out of fear, we can become complacent, right? And miss our call to worship. Fear is paralyzing. It often limits us as Christians. You know, the weight of just a lot of times our guilt and our shame is what stops us from truly worshiping him and serving him. See, God's holiness is terrifying because often I think the greatest reason it's terrifying to us is that it reveals our, our strengths are our greatest weaknesses. Notice Isaiah specifically talks about his lips. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. For a prophet, his lips would have been his pride and joy. This is the way he ministered. God had gifted him in the gift of proclaiming his word, the gift of prophecy, warning Basically, warning Judah of all the sins and what was to come. If they didn't repent, they were going to be removed from the land, right? And they didn't heed this. It's, you know, it's basically the lips are how he proclaims his message, you know, and, it, and it, he would have had great pride in it. Maybe it's like, you know, a banker to his money, maybe a quarterback with his arm, a business, businessman with his mind, you know, maybe a singer with their voice. You know, it's probably the very thing that right now you can't, imagine your minds to lose in your life. God, don't take that one thing from me. For Isaiah, his lips would represent the greatest strength, but God reveals even that to be worthless to him. This is why he's a man undone. His greatest gift, God has shown him, at its best is insufficient, will not carry him. Keller said this, he said, the holiness of God doesn't make Isaiah ashamed of his weakness. It makes him look at his strengths and realize they aren't strengths at all. I think it was uh, Oswald Chambers said, you know, an unguarded strength is like a double weakness. We need to be fully aware of what gifts God has given us and the strengths, and we use them for his glory. And we not let the pride and the blessings of what God has given us consume us to the point where we let the pride create sin in us to where we're useless for his kingdom. George Whitfield whose preaching spawned the Great Awakening, he, has, he basically always taught with two, two points in the sermon. The first, very obvious, that we ought to repent of our sin. The second, he says this, repent of your strengths, because for two reasons. He says, you, you use those as a source of false confidence that you don't really need God, and because you use them to try and cover up your sins to justify yourself before God. Which, what do you think will justify you before God today? What do you think holds your life together? Because it's our strength all the times we fall back to. We go back to what we know best, right? And I, I can tell you right now, if you really think about that, that's the greatest source of your sin usually. Because that strength takes your eyes off your hope in God, your reliance on him. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever good thing makes us forget that we are saved by his grace and that we desperately need him, 
that is going to be, wind up being an area of contention for you in your life. It's going to separate you from God's will. And our strengths, not our weakness, are usually where that happens for us. Wherever you are weak, you will naturally rely on God. It's where you are strong that you will forget him. I'll repeat that because some of you need to really think about that. Wherever you are weak, you will naturally rely on God. It's where you are strong that you will forget him. The second point here is that God says he recognizes, he's, Isaiah is recognizing God's healing touch. It's, aren't you glad today that when God reveals the sin in our life, he doesn't just leave us there? Right? With Isaiah, it was an angel that came to him with a live coal from the altar and touched his lips, intimately touching his life. And for us, it's the precious blood of Jesus, right? All that he did on the cross, that he would surrender his life for us, for our sins. See, your sin is forgiven. It just takes confession. Isaiah cried out because of his unclean lips. And it's very possible the reason Isaiah cried out you know, was maybe because he was suffering, maybe he was tragically suffering from gossip, lying, profanity. The Bible doesn't really tell us why. Maybe really the biggest problem is it's just simply that the very lips that he was supposed to proclaim God's words with, he knew that filth was coming out of. But, the, but then his lips were touched by this burning coal from the altar, and his iniquity was taken away, and his sin forgiven. See, God just doesn't leave us there. There's nothing Isaiah did at that point other than receive. See, and come to him with a, with a heart that says, Lord, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Confession. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The cleansing, the forgiveness is not because of what we've done, but what he has done for us. If we ever see God as he is, and we see us as we truly are, that's the point in which we can come to God in humility and confess. The closer you get to him, the worse we look, right? Are you forgiven today? Have you experienced God's grace in your life? I believe in this room, we're probably surrounded by fellow believers, and if we're here today, we call Jesus Lord of our lives, then we have reason to worship him, amen? So that brings us to the most famous verse in Isaiah, probably. Verse eight, and also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. We need to commit like Isaiah. To say that I'm available, Lord. I'm no longer thinking about the past. I'm not thinking about Uzziah's death. I'm realizing that I'm available. I'm a man that's been cleansed. My sins purged for me. I'm forgiven. I'm useful for the kingdom. I'm a man not ashamed. I'm not suffering from guilt. I'm not separated from him, but I'm ready to, for his service. He was signifying that he was over the death of Uzziah. And yet his life is now available for sacrificial service for him, that God may be glorified. Romans 12, 1, 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. This world is dying to see people that are sacrificially serving in his name and worshiping him, that he may be glorified through us, manifested in our lives, that we may point people to him, that they may look at our lives and say and see something desirable that they, they want a part of in their own lives, and that they would seek him because they see things in our lives. 
That's what God's looking for. Jesus told his disciples, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few, and therefore pray the Lord, the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, send, send you out as lambs among the wolves. See, most of us, no doubt, would be in this room and tell us that, and, and admit that we've confessed our sins to the Lord. We're ready for service. But then why do we have so many lacking in ministry, lacking in service? We have a shortage of missionaries. We have a shortage of people entering into full-time ministry. We have men vacating in the pulpits of churches. We have churches dying left and right in America. I just read a report the other day that churches are dying more in America than any other country. And yet, Isaiah, we can follow his command and say, here I am, send me, Lord. Are we ready to go? Are we willing to serve him? You know, the reason we don't is we have dull ears and dim eyes, he says. Look at verses 9 and 10. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their, their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. See, God had commissioned Isaiah. After all this, he commissions them to the, one of the hardest missions and commissions that you can see explained probably in the Bible. You're going to go share the word to people that are not going to hear you. They're not going to see you. It's going to fall on deaf ears. Only a tenth of the remnant will remain. And we know from biblical history that this remnant literally, we get, aren't you glad God hasn't given up on us, that we are that remnant, right? That this remnant really, this is, this is what we're going to be, they're going to be in Babylonian captivity for 70 plus years because they wouldn't repent. Matthew 13, 13 through 14 um, Jesus is basically explains to the disciples why he began to speak in parables. And this is what he says. He says, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. See, so Jesus isn't hard isn't that they wouldn't understand. He's trying to make it blatantly obvious that they don't want to. See, when the truth of the word is preached, those who are dull of hearing and dim of seeing become blatantly obvious. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. You know, we did a really interesting thing in one of our staff meetings here at the church. Uh, Scotty busted out his laptop and was playing some different sounds and frequencies. And the human ear can hear a range from anywhere from 20 hertz to about 20,000 hertz. And see, if you're older like me and you have gray in your beard and you've done a lot of bad things to your ears, you can't hear all the way up to the 20,000 range. For you young people, that's what you hear, right? But for us older, older people that have done a great damage, you know, you drop off somewhere around 13,000, 14,000, 15,000. And so as you play this high-frequency noise, and he's playing it on the laptop, some of us older people are like, play it louder, can't hear it. And it's getting louder and louder and more obnoxious, right? And, you know, honestly, that's, that's the problem is that it was an internal thing. See, the problem, Isaiah is realizing that there's internal sin within him. The problem we need to recognize is that often our problems are internal. It's not external. He's not saying, woe is my neighbor anymore, like he did in chapter 5. He's saying, woe is me. Woe is me. 
And that's the heart that God wants to use for his service. It's painfully obvious that when we're sitting there saying, making it louder. Listen, my friends, it's, it's worshiping God, God when we don't see or hear him. It, it's painfully disconnected in the harmony for the rest of the body. We've got to recognize the sin comes from within. And then he asks, Isaiah asks, he says, how long until they're removed from the land? God's looking for people to have a vision of him that traumatizes them. And, and they see his majesty and his glory and his holiness. People that will be driven to sacrificially worship and serve him. You know, I often encourage the men at Tactical at our church of one simple thing. And I tell them, if you're not growing, you're dying. You've got to seek the Lord in everything. And you know, you know why tonight I, or today I'm sharing with you my love for Isaiah 6 so much? It's because God re- revealed it to me in a fresh new light one night. You know, my wife was diagnosed a couple years ago with epilepsy. It was a really a rough, kind of tragic time for us. Came out of the blue. And we were in and out of hospitals. My wife having seizures on a regular basis, um, long seizures, um, to the point of even having a heart attack during one of them. And it was just a really rough time. And one night after coming back from the hospital, a doctor sending us home saying, we can't do anything in this local hospital. You need to see your specialist. You know, and I'm watching her in bed. I'm watching her have a seizure. And I'm just calling out to God, and I'm saying, I'm undone. I'm done, Lord. I just can't do anymore. And I'd done everything in my own strength, arguing with doctors, arguing with insurance. You know, and some of you, you know what that's like, to just pour out your everything in life, and you're just feeling like you're hitting wall after wall. And maybe that's the season of life that you're in right now. See, but God revealed something to me that night as I opened up Isaiah 6 and was reading. He reminded me of how God was so faithful to me and my family, that I had people ministering to us, you, the body of believers here at Reliance, praying for us, ministering to my family, bringing them food, taking care of my kids in our absence. And I began to praise him. See, and God revealed something else to me. He reminded me of the very thing that brought me to salvation in my youth. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall guide and direct your paths. See, God has a way of bringing you back sometimes to the very thing that you struggle with. As a control freak, to say, God, I want to trust you. I want you to have your way in my life. See, you know what humbling is and humility looks like? Humility is when you, when you request your wife's doctor transcripts and medical records, so you can bring them to another hospital and you read them, and then there is a quote from the doctor that says, the husband is hostile. (laughs) Now, I could justify it. You know, I'm from New York, so, you know, I said, do you know what hostile is? (laughs) I'm talking about my wife and wanting to protect her and shepherd her. Could I, do I have right to be hostile, maybe. But you know, if I walk with it, I, I realize this, that God wanted me to trust him. So my wife is year and a half, no seizures healed. Now, if that isn't something to praise the Lord about, I don't know what is. Listen, my friends, what God has shown me over the last couple of years of life is short. We have to be willing to serve him. 
Isaiah has set out a natural progression for us to follow if we want to faithfully worship him. That's why at Reliant Church we say we want to lead people to know, love, and serve God. you got to know him. you got to love him to get to the spot where you can serve him out of a love for what he has done for you in your life. He's done all this and forgiven you that you might worship him in your service to one another. If we say, say, here I am, without these proper steps, we'll be nothing for him. You know, has the Lord touched you in your life? Has he forgiven you? Has he touched areas of your life and stripped away those things that you're holding on to right now? See, for Isaiah, God touched him in the very area that he needed, right on his lips. And before God sends a man, he must intimately touch him. God touched Isaiah at the very point of his greatest need, Where is God touching you today in your life? What is that area you're afraid to let go of? I would pray today that you you think about that and you come and you ask for forgiveness and you confess to one another and you come and you seek prayer in that area today.